Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're paying tribute to a side of Washington you don't really see much in movies or books or with shows like House of Cards and Veep anyway on television. We're talking about DC's tech scene. In 2013, Forbes declared the nation's capital the number one new tech hotspot in the country. Over the past 10 years, jobs in Washington's technology sector have grown by 50 percent, and the district government hopes to grow them 100 percent over the next five years. It also plans to double the amount of capital invested in D.C. tech companies. Speaking of tech companies, the city is now home to more than 1,000 tech startups, with more on the way. So it's no wonder that these days you keep hearing people toss around statements that go something like this. Entrepreneurs have historically been disengaged with Washington, but now that's changing. Here to tell us how Washington, D.C. might be becoming the new Silicon Valley is Tony I think, I think it is Silicon Valley East. The uh, future of Washington, D.C. is tech. The capital of the United States America is facing the Silicon Valley. While it may not be about to out-innovate Silicon Valley, it looks like Washington will soon be known for more than just politics. Notice a pattern here. Yep, more and more, the Washington region is being touted as the next Silicon Valley. That is the legendary West Coast hub for technology behemoths, not to mention thousands of startups. But if you ask D.C. tech insiders what they think, you'll hear something a little different. Um, the mayor likes to say that there's going to be a day where people will say, we want to be the next D.C. instead of the next Silicon Valley. Erin Horn-McKinney is Mayor Vincent Gray's tech and innovation sector manager. So she's the one who represents tech firms, entrepreneurs, and organizations that want to locate or grow in D.C. You know, as part of the mayor's five-year economic plan that he launched two years ago, vision two of it was to create the largest tech hub on the East Coast. And I think that we're definitely poised to be that. And why are we poised to be that? Well, for a number of reasons, she says, like the incentives D.C. offers high-tech businesses. Our tech incentives actually are the most competitive in the country. Not only does the district waive corporate income taxes for the first five years, it provides new higher wage reimbursements and relocation credits. So if they hire someone that is moving to the DMV, there's a $5,000 tax credit. But if they move into the district, it's 7500 Thing is, it's not just about enticements luring people in. It's about what they find once they get here, like a thriving investment community. The district is in the top five for venture capitalists. A highly educated population with ties to the federal government and countless nonprofits. So it just makes for a perfect ecosystem to have a wonderful intellectual capital. And then there's something McKinney is especially proud of, a new technology corridor in northwest Washington. The base of it is at 7th and New York Avenue, and it goes up about three miles to Petworth along 7th Street in Georgia Avenue. Startups have been applying for grants to locate in this corridor, anywhere from $25,000 to $200,000. The first eight grantees were announced last month, including... So how many spaces have you worked out of so far? Silica Labs. We got a, a month at 1776, then we moved to Canvas, and then we shared the space with our friends from Social Radar, another startup. We've also been to Affinity Labs. So that's the fourth one, and this one is our fifth one. So when we open our own space, we'll be the sixth one, not to mention our living room. Yeah. Living rooms, coffee shops. Coffee shops We've yeah. done it all. <laughs> I'm standing with Silica Labs co-founders Antonio Zugaldia and Stephanie Nguyen in that fifth space they mentioned, the offices of Chief, a creative design agency. But now that they've won more than $147,000 from the Digital DC Tech Fund, they plan on moving to the Digital DC Tech Tech corridor early next year so they can complete their new app 
Landmark. Landmark is a navigation app for walking directions based on photos of buildings and landmarks, not maps. And the content comes from users. They're uploading their own pictures? Yes. So it'll be a crowdsourced community. Speaking of community, Nguyen and Zugaldia say they're already bonding with their fellow grant winners, which include Ride, a battery-powered electric bike company, EventCloud, an event manager for businesses, and AquaCore, an energy monitor for large corporations. We've already had multiple conversations with each other about space, about, you know, questions that we've been having, you know, um, about paperwork and bookkeeping, so... We're definitely keeping the conversation going. Antonio Zugaldia says Silica Labs is also working with a mentor from the grant program as they seek new space in the tech corridor. We just want open spaces. We would like to share spaces with other companies. We are not like we don't want to share space with a potential competitor or with another startup that might steal our secrets. We actually kind of the opposite. If we work isolated, we, we don't thrive that way. And that's a big reason the city is developing this tech corridor. Not only will it provide high-tech businesses with affordable office space and a bevy of transit options, all the while helping to reinvigorate several neighborhoods, but it'll cluster them all together, helping to create what Zugaldia calls a critical mass. When you are building your own startup in D.C., you have venture capital, you have people to hire, you have the sharing culture. And the moment you can find those elements in your city, you don't need to go anywhere. Growing a tech community is all about density. If there's anything I've learned in reporting on this for almost five years, density is kind of the theme that people keep coming back to. This idea that you want to have a lot of people and a lot of companies concentrated in the same place. Stephen Overly has been covering the local tech community for The Washington Post for, yes, almost five years. We met in the Post's cafeteria. And the nice thing about D.C. in particular is we're quite small compared to, you know, the Silicon Valley, which extends from San Jose up to San Francisco. So we have kind of a, a small area, and the more people and the more companies you can pack into that location, the more tech companies and more entrepreneurs that we're going to see. Overly says the D.C. Tech Corridor will help with that, as will another district initiative, an innovation hub on the city-owned east campus of the former St. Elizabeth's Hospital in one of the poorest areas of Ward 8. Over the next two decades, the city will bring academic institutions and technology firms, along with hotels, retail, and more than a 1,000 residential units, to this massive space across from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security's new digs. Obviously, the district has a lot of land there, but it's also part of the city where they really want to focus economic development and see some revitalization in the traditional economic development we're used to. So housing and restaurants and shops. Tech is a little bit different because these are, by and large, very small companies. Of every 100, only a handful will ever make it big, if that. And so it's a little bit more of a gamble. And not too long ago. So when you come in, you enter into our grand hall. This is very bright, very sunny, very airy. I paid a visit to that gamble with Catherine Buell, the executive director of St. Elizabeth's East. Um, And then the first two rooms that you'll see when you enter into the demonstration center is our demonstration hall and our lecture hall. There's a lot of technology. We're in the first Um, completed building of D.C.'s Innovation Hub, the RISE Demonstration Center, a converted chapel near the Congress Heights metro stop. Ward Aid likes to make sure that it is well represented and reflected in the project. So RISE stands for Relate, Innovate, Stimulate, Elevate. And you'll notice that the number eight is in all of those. D.C. poured more than $8 million into the center, which includes those demonstration and lecture halls, as well as smaller meeting rooms and classrooms and a spacious computer lab. So this is really meant to be somewhere between a community center and a technology center. We're not a public library. We're not a government 
agency building where something that the district has never done before. The RISE Center is selecting various programming partners, including Microsoft, the Washington Informer, Code for Progress, all of whom will offer tech-based programs, classes, and seminars to the community in exchange for free use of the space. And we mentioned Microsoft. As D.C. Deputy Mayor Jeffrey Miller explains, the software giant will play a huge role at St. Elizabeth's East as it builds one of its Microsoft Innovation Centers, a facility that brings software training and new product testing to emerging economic areas. Uh, And we've uh, already been in discussions with them. We are moving ahead with uh, repurposing one of the buildings on the St. Elizabeth's East campus to, in fact, create that innovation campus. Microsoft has nearly 100 innovation centers across the world, mainly in Eastern Europe, India, and Brazil. Its first American outpost opened earlier this year in Miami, Florida. Uh, So this would be the second innovation campus in the United States. Now, the Microsoft facility won't provide any new jobs. It'll be staffed by Microsoft employees from its offices in D.C., Reston, Virginia, and Chevy Chase, Maryland. But the city expects the Innovation Center, along with the rest of the Innovation Hub, to energize and attract many a tech startup east of the river. The hope, says Jeffrey Miller, is the Innovation Hub in Southeast and the Digital Corridor in Northwest will put the nation's capital even more solidly on the country's and world's technological map. They both feed into the the broader initiative of attracting technology and growing technology in the city. Uh, Certainly the desire is to broaden that corridor to be more citywide and create sort of a a large district-wide innovation campus. But going back to where we started, does that mean Washington, D.C. will be the next Silicon Valley? The truth is, everyone I interviewed for this story was pretty much on the same page, like St. Elizabeth's Catherine Buell. The district should not try to be Silicon Valley. It needs to be its own version of a technology center. The Washington Post's Stephen Overly. You know, everyone used to want to be Silicon Valley, and everyone did compare themselves to that. They've realized that they don't need to be Silicon Valley to be successful. And Silica Lab's Stephanie Nguyen. That's not the right question. You can't compare apples to oranges. What is special about this area here? One, you know, obviously the federal government, but you also have a really big culture of civic-based innovation for big topics, education, healthcare, transportation. Then there was one more fellow I interviewed, and he's a big proponent of that last point. As the founder of the Georgetown Entrepreneurship Initiative, Jeff Reed educates the next generation of entrepreneurs here in D.C. This city attracts people who come here thinking about ways they can make the world better. Now, often they initially pursue government or the big NGO-type jobs, but often these people realize that an entrepreneurial career is a great way to make a difference in the world. So if you ask him the Silicon Valley question, he says he's pretty much over it. It's kind of old news to think, oh, who's going to be the next Silicon Valley? The reality is it's not a zero-sum game. Entrepreneurs are not fighting over a slice of the pie. They're growing the pie bigger for everyone. we turn to you. What do you think DC's tech sector will look like in five or 10 years? And if you work in tech, where do you see our region fitting into the whole landscape of innovation? Send us your thoughts. Our email address is metro at wamu.org. for a break. But when we get back, 
The take-no-prisoners battle for talent in the world of cybersecurity. They've been able to attract our existing employees and bring them into the federal space to fill federal jobs. We have our competitors that are throwing more money at our, our current employees. That and more in a minute here on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection, where today we're focusing on D.C.'s burgeoning world of technology. When it comes to tech jobs, our region does pretty well in national rankings. Forbes puts D.C. in second place for so-called STEM jobs. That's jobs in science, technology, engineering, and math. Baltimore comes in fifth. And many of those jobs are in cybersecurity. Cybersecurity is the field that deals in part with keeping information safe. Everything from your most recent drugstore purchase to the most sensitive of intelligence at the NSA. Jennifer Strong brings us a look at the intense jostling among firms looking to hire cybersecurity workers and how local schools and governments are responding. Yep, there you go. Okay, perfect. Another success. Candace Lionels is taking apart a computer for the first time. She's one of about 20 students in the Silver Spring classroom. She and her classmates are part of an eight-week IT training course. It's offered by the nonprofit Prescolas. H.Y. Griffin is the director of career development. We're here because there's a need in our market. In this area, there are a lot of entry-level IT jobs that with a short amount of training and certification, people can be prepared for. The class is paid for through corporate donations. To the students, that means it's free of charge. We don't really like to say that it's free because people think that free means it's not valuable. We describe it as a $7,000 scholarship that is available to everyone who participates in our training. There are two to three times more tech jobs than average in the D.C. region, and not just in IT. The job market here spans a wide range of sectors and job types, from defense to health sciences, research and development to designing computer systems. Local government leaders look for ways to capitalize on this. Steve Silverman is Montgomery County's head of economic development. There's only one NIH and one FDA, and they happen to be located in Montgomery County, Maryland. So if you want to do therapeutic or medical device development, Uh, and go through the approval process. It it begins and ends with Montgomery County, Maryland. The I-270 corridor is a national hub for life sciences jobs. The county hosts incubators or workspaces for young companies to test out new ideas. It also offers a biotech tax credit. But the hottest area of growth is in cybersecurity. The amount of money that's going to be spent to protect us uh, from hackers, and we've seen examples like Target, Home Depot, and the like, we need to do everything we can to make sure that we're supporting businesses in the cyber field, but more importantly, that there's a pipeline of workers. There were 23,000 postings for cybersecurity jobs in the D.C. region last year. That's the largest concentration anywhere in the country, roughly double Silicon Valley and San Francisco combined. 
We should become the hub of civil cybersecurity in the country because the standards by which companies will be measured as protecting their customers will be written in Rockville, Maryland. He's referring to NIST, or the National Institute of Standards and Technology. These are the same folks who decide how much a pound actually weighs and other standards we take for granted. It's part of the Department of Commerce. Their new cybersecurity center of excellence is located in Montgomery County. But now there's a serious shortage of cybersecurity workers. Eric Eifert is a cybersecurity executive at Mantech and Fairfax. He says the demand for talent is creating real problems at firms like his. Mantech works in the defense and national security sector. Even entry-level employees need to have some experience and a security clearance. At any given day, we have several hundred vacancies. Not only is it a challenge to fill the vacant positions, the government is always looking for talent as well. So um, they've been able to attract our existing employees and bring them into the federal space to fill federal jobs. We have our competitors that are throwing more money at our, our current employees. Eifert says he started teaching a class at George Mason in part to help recruit students to come work for him. Margaret Leary agrees the problem is bigger than just recruiting. She's a director at the National Cyber Watch Center. To some extent, we will struggle with not being able to fill jobs until they address really what is at the root of some of that, because you're not going to take the average college senior. I don't care how good he is. You know, it takes time to vet somebody to get them into a position that requires a top secret clearance. Leary also heads the cybersecurity program at Nova Community College. She and Eric Eifert believe it would be helpful to start the security clearance process for future workers during their internships. So that by the time they graduate, they can have you know, not only their degree, but they can also be a cleared individual that can be put to work immediately. Despite the shortage of cybersecurity workers and the higher salaries that come with that, Leary cautions this is not a get-rich-quick scheme. She says it would be hard to succeed without a passion for the work. This is an area where 60% of your existing technical skills become obsolete in two years. And so you have to ask yourself, how are you going to keep those skills current? And, and within this field, it is by and large the employee's responsibility to improve those skills. The average salary for a local cybersecurity job is $93,000. That's about 15000 more than other tech jobs. I'm Jennifer Strong. Do you work in cybersecurity? How does the competition for talent affect your workplace? Tweet us. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. Or send an email to metro at WAMU.org. So D.C. may be a pretty hot job market for people with tech skills. But the reality is tech is an industry that's still dominated by men. Julie Alderman caught up with several female tech gurus to find out how women are faring in our local tech world. In her cubicle in an Arlington, Virginia office building, Jordan Bookie sits at her desk working on her startup, Zubin. Zubin helps families discover children's books and apps at home and at their local libraries. Bookie is a rarity. She's a woman working in the tech sector. According to the National Center for Women and Information Technology, only 26% of the computing field is made up of women. But Bookie is looking to change that. I think that in general, when you have more people at the table and you have a more diverse set of perspectives at the table, you're going to end up with a better result for everyone. The tech sector, and especially its symbolic capital in Silicon Valley, 
is infamous for being a difficult environment for women, especially if they're looking for venture funding. In Silicon Valley, everybody is um, venture-backed, looking for venture funding. Something on the order of 7% of um, venture money is going to women-owned businesses in, in technology. But is D.C. any friendlier towards women? Bookie and other women who have worked both in D.C. and Silicon Valley say yes. Kelly Sheehan, a senior manager at Hewlett-Packard and president of the Women in Technology of Washington, D.C., is meeting me for lunch at a noisy cafe in Tyson's Corner. I remember when I was in grad school, um, working on my master's degree, taking five-hour lab courses, and working full-time, and giving birth. Also, if you're a woman in technology and you you lay out of the workforce for a while, it's very hard to go back in because your skills become dated. She also thinks D.C. tends to attract people who want to change the world including the way women are treated in the workplace. I do think with the presence of the federal government here that there are definitely a lot of people that come here with the idea of making a difference and setting a new um, agenda or a new pattern or a new way of doing business. Donna Harris, co-founder of D.C.'s new startup incubator, 1776, says the way people go about changing the world itself has changed in the district. It's historically been... Come work on Capitol Hill, go work at Think Tank, join the World Bank, join a not-for-profit or an NGO. But today's generation has grown up where startups are somewhat mainstream. And so we see a lot of millennials embracing startups as the vehicle to drive that sort of change. Harris also says women are able to thrive in D.C. because it's such a diverse city one that attracts residents from all over the world. We have a very diverse community just from an international standpoint, so we have some really great assets to work with. Even in terms of the male-female mix, there's actually more women than men in the greater Washington, D.C. area. So it's a city that is more used to women and minorities being in leadership positions. Jordan Bookie, co-founder of Zubin, says the diversity in D.C. has helped her feel less marginalized in her industry. In my experience, I do not often feel that I am in the minority. In general, I have found a very strong community here of women. Bookie hopes more women will join that community. But, she says, it won't be a speedy process. When you have, you know, 15% of girls are graduating, uh, having taken the computer science AP course, you have to change that reality before you're going to see a change in the, you know, women who are doing startups. And that means that you're going to see this cycle until you really change that long-term pipeline. That 15% statistic she mentioned, it's pretty much reality in D.C., where boys taking the computer science advanced placement exam outnumbered girls 8 to 1. I'm Julie Alderman. To all the women in tech out there, do you think D.C. differs from other tech hubs around the country? Send your thoughts to metro at wamu.org. Now, the divide between genders isn't the only rift in the tech world. In the United States, we also see a persistent digital divide between rich and poor. Nearly 84% of all Americans have a computer. 74% have access to the Internet at home. That's according to census data released in September. 
But some people are left out of that census count, people who don't often have this sort of technology at their fingertips. They're the homeless, including many of the nearly 7,800 homeless D.C. residents counted in a recent survey. Tatiana Safranova talks with some of these individuals about how they try to bridge that digital divide in their own lives. Jane Nielsen grew up abroad in a marine family. He was a skater kid in Germany when the Berlin Wall fell in 1989. We said, yay, they went back skating. <laughs> Nielsen is now 40 and lives at 801 East, a men's shelter in Anacostia. He no longer has a skateboard. Keeping one in the shelter is a challenge, but he still keeps in touch with the friends he made growing up abroad. I had a whole bunch of pen pals, now we're email pals. And... He can video chat with friends on his phone, though he mostly relies on his Gmail app. On Sundays at 7 in the morning, Nielsen comes to the Gospel Art Group at the Church of the Epiphany on G Street. For God, whose blessed Son came into the world... It's Bible study combined with an art lab. Through grants, the church provides racks of art supplies, everything from canvas to brushes to glitter glue and pastels, and of course coffee, which is a big draw. For David Gadecki, gospel art is a relief from life in the shelters and on the streets. Oh, for me, it was a thing of sanity. It's a place where you can go and be out of the screaming and shouting. Gospel art is also where he learned how to draw. Me? My specialty has always been flowers. I like doing flowers because, quite frankly, they're easy. <laughs> you can see Gadecki's flowers along with dozens of works by other artists on the Gospel Art website. Gadecki built the site in 2012 at the computer lab at Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Library. Gadecki has no phone and no computer, but for more than 20 years in Florida, he worked as a computer programmer, learning new languages and operating systems right as they were being developed. Gadecki lost his job in 2003, years after companies started shrinking their tech departments and sending programming jobs overseas. Gadecki retrained and found clerical work, then security. He moved to Washington, D.C., hoping to land a job with the government, but he found himself homeless instead. These days, he's at the library every day, this time focusing on art and taking the free digital design classes offered at the MLK branch. My main focus was Photoshop, because that was the most fun thing to use, using layers. Once I got past that, that was like a mountain. It was oh, okay, now I can go crazy, you know? In 2010, thanks to a million-dollar government grant, D.C. Public Library partnered with Bite Back, a computer training organization, to expand its offering of classes. Together, they served almost 1,700 low-income students, 42% of them homeless. Kelly Ellsworth is Bite Back's executive director. Um, even though the point of the stimulus grant was not to employ, it wasn't about employment, it was about digital inclusion and computer literacy, the grant resulted in over $3 million of increased student earnings. After all, says Ellsworth, most people who take Bite Back classes are looking to find jobs or move up the career ladder. Because, you know, when the recession hit, there were a lot of people who lost their jobs and they couldn't reapply for a job because they, even if their job had nothing to do with computers, they needed computer skills to be able to search and apply for a new job. Sometimes, even when you have those skills, accessing technology can be a big challenge. 
David Gadecki is at Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Library, where he watches Photoshop tutorials on YouTube, stays in touch using Yahoo Mail, and is building a personal website. Library policy doesn't make that easy, though. Since 2009, people aren't allowed to bring more than two small bags with them into any of the public library branches. Gadecki has three bags. When you're homeless, it is a major deal breaker. And I think that's what discourages a lot of people from getting into this stuff. On top of that, Gadecki has to think about storing not only his bags, but also his files. About a month ago, someone broke into one of his lockers at the National Portrait Gallery, where he had to start storing his belongings. The thief stole Gadecki's smart trip card, his cash, and his 60-gigabyte thumb drive with his art. Huh? All that hard work you did on those flowers, you didn't Gone. lose anything. All of it gone. Are you serious? Um, you must have worked on that stuff for a month. A couple of months. Even as computer access and training become more accessible, for the homeless, digital literacy still takes a backseat to basic survival. As the weather gets colder, David is considering catching a bus back to Florida instead of spending another winter in the city's shelters. I'm Tatiana Safranova. And now, our ongoing journey around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit Akakeek, Maryland, and the Clover College Park area of Alexandria, Virginia. My name is Patricia Dane Rogers. I live in Clover College Park in the west end of Alexandria, Virginia. Clover College Park is located between Duke Street, Janney's Lane, West Taylor Run, and Quaker Lane. Clover comes from a 69-acre track, once known as Stump Hill, later changed to Summer Hill, um, that was sold to a developer in 1946. But it had 18th century roots, and literally the who's who of Old Town had a row of summer houses right where we're living today, starting in 1803. There are many interesting people who've lived in the Clover College Park neighborhood. Um, Cherry Ford is unique because most neighborhoods can't say that a president lived in their neighborhood for 20 years. But he did, and he was a very active part of the community. He went to Emanuel Church on the hill, just on the other side of Quaker Lane, was an active parishioner, as was his wife. And his um, children early on went to MacArthur School. When we moved here 15 years ago, it definitely skewed older. I would say many, many people in their 50s and 60s, and even older. Now, I think that most are in their, their 30s and 40s and have many young children. You can have a full life and never leave Clover at College Park. My name is Stevenson McElvain. I live in Akokeek, Maryland. Akokeek is located due south of Washington, about 20 miles south of the Washington Monument, down the Potomac. Mount Vernon is just across the river, just across the Potomac. You can see it from here. And from Mount Vernon, you can see this side. 
So back in the 60s when there was a threat of a cement plant or a sewage plant or something like that, forgotten what it was, the Park Service, under pressure from the Mount Vernon Ladies Association, bought up the shoreline and put easements on all the land behind the shoreline so that trees could not be cut down. My favorite part of living in Akakik is being this close to Washington and living a rural lifestyle. We farm. We're able to farm here, but we can sell our products in Washington. I'm not sure I want to say Akakik is a great place to live because we don't want <laughs> rapid growth. We are hopeful that, that Akakik will remain rural and quiet and peaceful, not part of the obvious Washington suburban sprawl. We heard from Patricia Dane Rogers in Clover College Park and Stevenson McIlvain in Akakik. If you think your neighborhood should be part of Door to Door, send an email to metro at wamu.org. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. In a minute, show and tell for grown-ups. You, know, you have to start small, and you have to build up your confidence. That's just ahead as our DC Tech Show continues on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and today we are all about the tech scene in Washington, D.C. In just a bit, we'll meet a scientist who just won a Nobel Prize and check out the revolutionary new microscope he's working on. But first, a little show and tell, or in this case, hack and tell. That's what you get when you bring together software engineers, civic hackers, and amateur coders to share projects they've made outside the confines of their cubicles. Lauren Ober visited a recent hack and tell in Chinatown to find out what DC's tech crowd tinkers on after they go home from work. It's a Tuesday night and a group of about 30 people are gathered in a hip Chinatown workspace listening to Shannon Turner explain a project she's been working on. As she talks, Turner projects a map on the screen at the front of the room. So this is a map of 500 schools and universities throughout the country that all said that they had zero sexual assaults on campus within a three-year period. All of the 500 colleges pinned on the map had at least 1,000 students. And Turner isn't buying that any school that size could claim to be completely free of sexual assault. So she built a computer program that would map the schools as a way of raising a skeptical eyebrow about their claims. So instead of shaming the schools that are like actually taking the problem seriously and reporting the numbers and the cases as they receive them, I wanted to shame the ones that said, nah, we don't have any problem. Turner's program isn't something she made for her job as a software developer at a local nonprofit. It's a side project she's been working on for fun. And she brought it here to this Hack and Tell event to show it off. Hack and Tell is just what it sounds like, a show and tell for the tech set. Here's organizer Aaron Schumacher. Hack and Tell is 
a get-together uh, around a series of short presentations, lightning talks. We have five minutes to show and talk about your fun project that you've done just because you felt like it. Hack and Tell got its start in New York City a couple of years ago and quickly spread to other cities. D.C.'s iteration has been around for a year and draws mostly folks who work in D.C.'s growing tech sector. The projects presented range from apps and computer programs to wearable technology and 3D printing experiments. And Schumacher says many of the projects have a do-gooder bent to them. Compared to New York, D.C. has more civic-minded folks, perhaps generally, and we do get more projects here that are about not just a fun hack, but also social good. So at Hack and Tell, they see things like... A mesh radio network that's supposed to help defeat censorship in communities with oppressive governments. An incredible array of things. Shannon's project tonight about raising awareness of possible suppression of sexual assault statistics and that kind of a thing. One recent Hack and Tell presentation was about an app called Baybucks, which rewards people for taking care of the Chesapeake Bay. Another was about a bot that automatically tweets when Wikipedia entries are changed from a congressional IP address. But not all Hack and Tell show pieces are for the good of mankind. Some are just for kicks, like the one baseball enthusiast Morgana Carter presents. Essentially, the issue is, if there's a Nets game, how soon do I have to leave my house to get there on time? And if there's not a Nets game, what other alternatives are there? But Carter's program doesn't just tell her when to leave her house for a game. It also gives her dining and transit options tailored to her specific preferences. If the Nats aren't playing, no big deal. What's great is that we have another team very close by, the Baltimore Orioles. So it asks if you want to go there. We'll force it to say yes. Carter types in a few commands. Great. So it gives me some information from the Orioles. So it's the 705 game, and it will automatically prompt me if I want a hotel. Software engineer Brian Frickert's UFO tracking project is admittedly the most frivolous of the night. You know, I want to start by saying there are a lot of positive things you can say about aliens that they uh, bring. A lot to the table, but they also do a lot of terrible things as well, and that's why we want to track them. But for Frickert, the point of creating the program and sharing it isn't to prove anything about UFOs. Rather, it's to play and create and learn from others who are also into tech. You know, you show up every day at work and say, yes, I'm an expert at this, and then you come out and you realize you, you don't know anything. But it's really unintimidating and very welcoming. And it makes the whole learning experience really fun and inspiring. Most of the code for Hack and Tell projects is open source, so anyone can take a crack at making similar stuff. And that's the whole point, to strengthen and grow the community's tech chops while learning about all the cool things people are making out there. I'm Lauren Ober. Curious about some of the other Hack and Tell projects? We've got you covered. Just head to metroconnection.org. Our next stop on today's tech show takes us outside D.C. to Loudoun County, Virginia. That's where you'll find the Howard Hughes Medical Institute's Janelia Research Campus. We first visited Janelia back in 2013 when I met researcher Anthony Leonardo, who was studying the flight of dragonflies using these tiny data-collecting backpacks that he'd actually attached to the little creature's backs. 
It was amazing. But anyway, Janelia was back in the news in a big way last month when another researcher, Eric Betzig, won the Nobel Prize in chemistry. The Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences has decided to award the 2014 Nobel Prize in chemistry to Dr. Eric Betzig at Hardius Medical Institute, Ashbourne, Betzig and two other scientists won for a technique called photoactivated localization microscopy, more often known as PALM. But these days, Betzig is actually eager to show off something else, a new tool called a lattice light sheet microscope. Exactly what is that all about? Well, Hans Andersen visited Betzig's lab to find out. Eric Betzig did not expect to win the Nobel Prize, at least not in chemistry. And I thought that if it happened, it would have happened in physics, not chemistry. Physics was announced the day before chemistry. And when it was, Betzig said, I'm so happy that I'm safe again for another year. And then I get a call and I'm like, who would be calling me now? It's a European number. It's 530. And then the light bulb goes out. Oh, God, I know what this is. And so then I swipe the phone. And sure enough, a Swedish voice comes on and says, you've won the Nobel Prize. And I go, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> And I hung up. Betzig and the researchers with whom he shares the prize are credited with a breakthrough that allows scientists to better visualize events happening on a super small scale. Think individual molecules creating synapses in the brain, or the proteins that work in a fertilized egg as it divides into embryos. But when he won the Nobel, Betzig was actually working on something else entirely. I frankly got bored of Palm about five years ago and wanted a new challenge. And so the challenge was, is can I make a microscope that can look at the dynamics of living cells in three dimensions? Today, I'm here to see that microscope. It's called the lattice light sheet. The problem with most microscopes is the way they use light, which can damage a sample or show a fuzzy picture. The lattice sends a thin slice of light through the sample. You can think of it like an optical knife, but a really narrow optical knife. Which doesn't damage the sample camera images that single slice from the knife, and then the sample moves along the light like a Xerox machine. And that gives you a whole series of a couple hundred 2D images that you can assemble into one 3D image. And then it goes, and then it does it again. It sounds slow, but that will go do this at up to a thousand planes a second. Which is pretty fast. The final result is a moving 3D image of the sample. Betzik uses an analogy of a football game to describe its significance. And even if I had beautiful HD images of all sorts of shots of the game, they wouldn't be able to be pieced together easily to explain the rules by which that game is played. That was what older microscopes did. But if I can just be at the game or watch it on TV and see it continuously and the dynamics of it, the rules become much more obvious. And that's the lattice. It will help scientists understand the rules of the game inside cells. It's a great tool for understanding cell division and the errors that occur during cell division. It's a good tool to be able to understand how cells move, um, and it's a good tool to understand embryonic development. Now, research groups are coming into Betzig's lab to use the lattice for their work. When I ask what Betzig wants to work on next... Well, there's, there's always another microscope to be made. That's right another microscope. This one will attempt to look at samples within their system. For example, cells interacting with other cells in the human body. Merely another project on a Nobel Prize winner's to-do list. I'm Hans Andersen. To 
to see videos of the Lattice Light Sheet Microscope in action, head to our website, metroconnection.org. We'll wrap things up today with a technology that isn't particularly new, but it's generating a lot of debate here in our region. Streetcars. In Virginia, leaders in Arlington County are debating the merits of a controversial $300 million streetcar line on Columbia Pike. Virginia reporter Michael Pope wanted to visit a place where streetcars have long been a part of the landscape to see what lessons these systems might hold for Virginia. So he headed to the German city of Berlin and brought us this story. 25 years after the fall of the wall, Berlin is a city that's still very much divided. One of the first things visitors here notice is that East Berlin has retained its old-fashioned streetcar system, while West Berlin abandoned it long ago. I have to blame you, the Americans. That's Petra Reitz. She runs the authority that operates streetcars in Berlin. Because they thought we have to build huge streets, we have to build the city that cars can come through the city, buses much more nice and nicer looking and not so old-fashioned than uh, tram lines. West Berlin just didn't see streetcars as part of its future. Even today, West Berliner Rainier Hesters thinks streetcars are dangerous. Whenever I, I open the newspaper, again and again there are accidents, uh, streetcars running over pedestrians, uh, bumping into into other cars. So I think it's, a, to my, in my opinion, it's a higher rate of accidents. Are you worried about yourself being hit by a streetcar? I'm extremely careful and cautious if I go by car into East Berlin and even see a streetcar close by. So here's one lesson for Arlington. If the system is approved, drivers on Columbia Pike will need to follow special rules to share the road with streetcars. Here in Berlin, drivers must stop when the streetcars are loading and unloading passengers. Inside the marble halls of Berlin's City Hall, the mayor spokesman Richard Ming says streetcars, known here as trams, play an important role in Berlin. As for the role they could play in northern Virginia... It depends on the local situation. And you must really have an analysis of your local situation, whether it's better or not. This is just one more option. So it seems like they're overlapping options. I mean, you've got the U-Bahn, the S-Bahn, the yes. tram system, yes, the buses. But, yes, but this is just, this is, this is what makes, uh, makes Berlin so effective, that we have a transport system for even more people than we have now, and that if one system has a problem, you still have one or two others. Developers in Arlington look at streetcars and see dollar signs, although that thinking hasn't hit Europe yet. So the debate in Arlington about whether or not streetcars attract what county leaders call choice riders is not part of the discussion here. Instead, streetcars offer Europeans a sense of nostalgia. That's why they take the old ones, Tatraban, <laughs> to, to use them here yeah, as well. That's Andreas Hoffman, who lives in Leipzig. The trams there include old East German streetcars known as Tatraban. Yeah, it's nice to have them because a special feeling about it because they have this typical noise of it and this is uh, actually quite good, nice sound. Many people see the streetcar lines that crisscross European cities as a needed investment in dealing with urban density. So because cities are, of course, they are much more cramped like uh, compared to U.S. cities. Um, 
people do really want to have pedestrian areas and areas that are not full of cars. That's Werner Eichhorst, director of labor policy for the Institute for the Study of Labor in Bonn, Germany. I'm always a bit surprised about this, let's say, the deplorable status of public transport in the U.S. I think that the networks could be much uh, better, um, more reliable, and maybe a bit more modern. Not everyone here is a fan of streetcars. Back in Berlin, businessman Ivers Pierre says he believes the American push for more streetcars is more about making money than helping commuters. Instead of making things faster to resolve things, it's putting it worse. Instead, it's not resolving to nothing. It's just some, I would say, some people, some investors who are thinking about making money and they just want to build um, the street line so that way they can get profit out of it and make it life more expensive to people. Back at home in America, residents of Arlington are becoming deeply divided over the streetcar, a debate that has become increasingly acrimonious in recent months. So perhaps the best lesson from Berlin is that people will remain deeply divided over streetcars for years to come, a division that remains very much evident here today, 25 years after the fall of the wall that once separated this city and its transportation systems. I'm Michael Pope. So you've heard the sound, now see the photos. We have pictures from Michael's trip to Germany on our website, metroconnection.org. That's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Lauren Ober, Michael Pope, Hans Anderson, and Julie Alderman, along with reporters Jennifer Strong and Tatiana Safranova. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Julie Alderman. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. If you missed part of today's show and want to hear the whole thing, just head to our website, metroconnection.org, and click This Week on Metro Connection. Or subscribe to our podcast. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll look at the rise of a particular drug in our region, heroin. We'll hear from parents, health workers, police officers, and others working to confront a widespread and often hidden problem. And we'll talk with former users who've managed to get their lives back on track. I feel if I had chosen differently on that day, I would be dead. There was a line that I somehow was lucky enough not to cross. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News. 